You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Let's get started. Well, good afternoon, mi gente. Buenos dias. Nice to see so many beautiful little Zoom faces in the Zoom mundo with us today. Let me just say, first off, welcome, welcome, welcome to City Lights Live, the uh, City Lights Books events that used to happen upstairs in the poetry room have now transferred over to the Zoom Mundo. So uh, it's a beautiful thing to be able to welcome people from all over to our events. And uh, today we are so very excited, and I don't say that lightly, because we are uh, going to be joined by two amazing Reinas powerhouses, literary writers, poets. This is going to be so good, y'all. Man, we're celebrating the launch of Field Study. Yay! Uh, Sheila Sebri today, and in conversation with Sheila is going to be Dantel W. Moniz, author of Milk, Blood, and Heat. So uh, this is going to be such a wonderful event. Hope y'all are ready. Y'all look a little too calm in the Zoom window. I, I should just tell you right off, the anticipation for this is, is something something else entirely. But um, I'm going to shut up. I'm not going to talk too much, I promise. I just want to... Uh, Kindly remind you all to uh, buy these books if you haven't already through the bookstore. Uh, it's a great way to support City Lights and keep us keep us on the planet. So, all right, now without further ado, let me just read two quick bios and get the heck out of the way. Shali Sebri is the director of the Stadler Center for Poetry and Literary Arts at Bucknell University and the author of Mistress, winner of the 2018 New Issue Poetry Prize and nominated for a 2020 NAACP award. She earned an MFA in creative writing with a focus in poetry from American University and has received fellowships from the Delaware Division of the Arts, the McDowell Colony, Edgebrook, Yaddo, Vermont Study Center, and Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies. Her poetry has appeared in the Kenyan Review, Guernica, Laides, and many, many other outlets. And joining her tonight, today in conversation is the fantastic Dantel W. Moniz. Dantel is the recipient of the Alice Hoffman Prize for Fiction, the Cecilia Joyce Johnson Emerging Writers Award by the Key West Literary Seminar, a Tin House Scholarship, and has been named a writer to watch by Publishers Weekly and Apple Books. Her debut collection, Milk, Blood, Geet, is an indie next pick, an Amazon Best Book of the Month selection, a Roxanne Gay Audacious Book Club pick, and has been hailed as a must read by Time, Entertainment Weekly, BuzzFeed, L, and O, the Oprah Magazine, among others. Dantel's work has appeared in the Paris Review, Harper's Bazaar, Tin House, One Story, American Short Fiction, Plowshares, The Yale Review, McSweeney's Quarterly Concerns, and elsewhere. She lives in Northeast Florida and currently teaches fiction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And now, without further ado, mi gente, por favorcito, put your Zoom hands together Rochelle Sabri and Dantel W. Moniz. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone, for being here today. Um, I'm so excited to be in conversation with my girl, Dantil, and to read for you all. Um, this is the first time I'm really reading from field studies, so if I trip over my words, don't say anything. That's mostly to my girl, Dantil. Um, <laughs> but I um, thank you, everyone at City Lights, for having me here today, and everyone for joining us. I'm super excited to share with you. And I'm actually just going to start at the, real, the very beginning of the text, and I'm even going to read you all the 
the dedication and epigraph. So I will go ahead and start. For those seeking whole with the holes they see. And the epigraph reads, Black women do not have all of the answers. We are not superheroes and ours is not the definite worldview, but we are trustworthy subjects of our own experiences and of ways of knowing. Tressie McMillan Cottom. Field study. I'm not good at small talk. At a former colleague's dinner party, I was talking about life, about desire, about this and how I've basically been single for five years. This feels like an overshare, now and then. Someone tells me this is the beginning. Field research is the collection of observational information. Approaches vary across disciplines. This field is my brain's backlog of books and a lot of bedrooms. This field has maps made of men, of finger pads, of scrotal sacs, my muscles of moleskin. Analysis, trapped between my split nails, their skin cells. Or was the beginning the basement of a church converted into a place of poetry worship with coffee and chocolate and another black woman? I thought maybe I'd start with the night I met you, a scene that unfolded around a dining room table. I didn't think I'd start with two men, one white, one black at a dinner party. I knew and didn't know these men had life altering things happening, illness, retirement, death in the family. These all feel more important than this and their races, but sadly those won't be the stories I'm telling. After you moved across the country, leaving me in our city, a white friend asked me why I dated you, a white man. I said something about your hazel eyes and thick brown hair. At last suggested it could have something to do with the past. Fetish, a sexual desire in which gratification is linked to fixation. Were white men my kink? At the Bedford Reformatory for Women, same-sex interracial relationships were referred to as harmful intimacies. An anthropological field study makes it easier to breathe when my heart aches at the sight of ambering leaves. Someone asked me if I was writing an autoethnography in poetry, a character study, a fiction, a script. In the belly of the building, the black woman asked, do you still watch Scandal? Quote, when we look at the screen, all we see is ourselves. All you can do is comment on whether you feel it is a good resemblance or not. This is a conscious, clearly ego-directed activity. Mike Kelly. But what if you're an infant first admiring your reflection, reaching out to see if those soft fleshed hands reach back? When my father tells me I'm beautiful, I cross my eyes and curl the corner of my upper lip. Let me begin by saying my father is not perfect, that my mother may think I need to learn this. As a child, I wondered why all my white classmates had hair that cascaded like cartoon characters. Quote, Disappointed that at Grazia UK edited out and smoothed my hair to fit a more Eurocentric notion of what beautiful looks like. 
Lupita Nyong'o. I fear this tweet will go the way of MySpace and AIM, but that the sentiment will remain the same. My father hopes I'll let people see the me he sees before I curl my lip. 20 years since my hair has lapped the creamy crack, my hair stays straight with more ease after trees lose their leaves. To be clear here, I won't bear the weight of white legibility. My great grandmother was paper bag test passing high yellow. My grandmother has always been particular about pigmentation, was the first to protest my natural naps. She called out grandson when she first met you. It was 2011. We're still stuck in the doll test. Note, I ask a few black friends if they consider me light skin. One laughs hysterically. Another, depends on who you're asking. Teach her to cook, my great-grand said to my mom of me. She's too pretty to be in the kitchen, but teach her anyway. Inception. The establishment or starting point of an institution or activity. Quote. Whiteness is such the American default that it has even colonized our imaginations. Damon Young. Perhaps I was Bacola seeking the bluest eye in another. When I was a child, none of the kissing scenes featured men with my coloring. The closest, Aladdin, my favorite. In Inception, dreams are used to implant an idea into someone's subconscious. In my dreams, white men have figured prominently. In my dreams, after these years, you're still one of them. In his dissertation, Roske states, this study blends my love of literature with my desire to understand my own subject position and my own family history in relation to America's historical preoccupation with interracial desire. It prompts my own investigation. I find interesting the covers of some topical tomes, two-toned ice cream cone, a black woman presented as dead-eyed doe, Another's title fashioned after a, familiar fam after a familiar familial adage, don't bring a white boy home. I guess the beginning would be preschool and a boy named Connor, or maybe I'm older. Maybe it starts with Bobby or Eric or Dan or Dan or you or Dan again. What can I say? I was born in the eighties, went to a lot of white schools Dan was a popular white boy name. I was one of the few black girls in class, one of the ones with a name that did not pass. And I'll stop there. Even though I saw Dantiel laughing when I tripped up I over the- I didn't laugh. I smiled. You know what you did with them Fs in that sentence. That's on you. I do, I do, I do. <laughs> so, first and foremost, thank you so much for reading it. That's like the first time that I've actually heard you like read out loud from this book. I have mostly encountered these words on the page. So I'm so glad that we can be here. Um, so we're gonna get into a lot of stuff. I have a lot of questions for Shayla, a lot of discussion. And I also have a little game that we're gonna play at the very end of the session. So please stick around and play. I'm gonna make Shayla get out of the chat for that so she doesn't cheat, but like stick around and, and play the trivia with us. But um, 
Hi, Katrina. Hi, Shayla's dad, first of all. <laughs> so there's that. Okay. So before we get into the discussion, I have to have a friend moment with you, Shayla, because I remember when you first started thinking about writing this book or you were writing it and then you called me and you were like, I just don't know like if I can share this, like the hesitancy of like, what will it mean about me if this goes out into the public? Like what will people think of it? And, you know, obviously how does that reflect on me? And, you know, you sent it to me very reluctantly, but I was like, okay, yeah, no, send it. Let me, let's, let me see it. And I just remember reading the first few pages and calling you back and being like, girl, like this is so relatable. You know, like if you were somebody who has not been who didn't grow up like 100% unaffected by white supremacy or imperfect love, like both familial and romantic, right? Like all of the ways in which love can like shape us and kind of destroy us, right? Then like this book holds something for you. And I told you, you need to believe in what you're doing, what you're trying to do on the page, you need to finish it. And so it's really wild to me right now that a whole year later, it was a year, right? Was it two years? I don't even know. Time has been like dumb all of 2020. Whatever amount of time has been, it's wild oh, to me. I that we're sitting here right now and the book is out in the world for other people to see. So again, I hope you all will um, read the book if you haven't already, buy the book um, from an indie so that we can have bookstores around and like do this in person. Cause I promise you the energy is like a hundred right now, but it would be like 200 if we were in person. So, all right. That being said, let's get into it. So before we start talking about like the meat of this book, you know, we have to talk about the form in the marketing and inside the book itself, there are musings about what exactly this book is in terms of genre, right? So I wanted to know how you think of it. Prose poem, lyric memoir, something else entirely. What drew you to this kind of form or formlessness that you have in this book? Yeah, I think for me, when I started writing Field Study, I thought I was writing an essay. Um, and I thought I was writing an essay in response to interracial desire. There was um, Sharon McCallum was my boss at the Stadler Center before I started directing the Stadler Center. And she asked me that question that comes early in the book, like, do you still watch Scandal? And I was like, yeah, but I don't know if it really, I don't know if I love it anymore. It used to have, like, it used to be episodic and something different was happening every single episode. And it was sort of like a procedural, a, oh, I messed up that word, but like, it was something where they were solving something every single time. And, um, it became far more invested in like the love stories and family and all these other things. And I was like, I'm not sure I'm always interested in what's happening, but I keep watching and I'm obsessed. And I don't know if it's this or that, this or that. And she just stopped me and she was like, well, obviously it's your investment in interracial desire. And I was like, what? And she, she was shocked that I was shocked. And I was like, oh snap, I do really love Jake and Olivia's really messy relationship. And so like I started doing research with the intent of writing an essay. And so like that was how I got to Ross Gay's PhD dissertation where I was reading that and was trying to just understand like representations of interracial desire, interracial relationships in the world. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna write an essay. And then I started trying to write this essay with these notes that I'd taken and realized very quickly, I'm not gonna come to any answers. I don't even know what I'm attempting to answer. I think I just wanna meditate on it. And so I moved from what would have been a more traditional essay to a lyric essay where I was like, I'm gonna braid things together. And I was thinking about Eula Biss's essays in Notes from No Man's Land. I was thinking about all apologies and um, time and distance overcome in particular. And they have like these little sort of episodic bursts where it's like, this thing's happening and this thing's happening. And I realized in doing that, I would potentially have to strip away some of the notes that I was accruing that were really interesting to me. And so I think I just allowed myself to like patch things together 
but that made me really nervous because I really didn't have a structure for that. And I thought about Sarah Mangusso's 300 arguments. I was like, well, maybe it can be just a little bit formless. I don't have to really explain what it is, but when it came time to like sell the book and have the book live in the world and to write copy for the back of book and things like that, I was like, particularly in selling the book, they're like, so this is a work of nonfiction. I was like, oh, it is certainly not that. Um, I was like, um, cause sometimes the lie, the lie sounds better. Um, there's more music to the lie. I'm also fudging some things here. So I felt really uncomfortable with this idea of nonfiction because I thought there was a rigidity to it that I didn't think the project had. But then I had fellow poetry and was like, so is this actually poetry though? And I think I started to ask that question in the text, like how am I defining poetry? Am I, is it lyric language? Because I don't necessarily believe poetry has to have a line break. And so honestly, if I could avoid the question of what this is, I absolutely would. Um, I think it probably stands somewhere between a book length prose poem in sections and a lyric memoir, but still that word memoir, I feel like um, there is truth in the book and there's truth to the book, but I think it's so hard to call it lyric memoir because I don't want everyone to read the book and automatically assume everything is me. I still see it as like a speaker. And yes, in some moments, I'm absolutely the speaker. And in some moments, the speaker is a combination of a whole bunch of other Black women I know who've lived similar experiences. And so um, I think I'm always trying to push away from a monolithic representation of Black womanhood by telling a singular story. And so like I am telling a singular story, but it's not necessarily every step of the way, my singular story. Um, I think that answered your question or maybe it, it didn't. It did. And you also are trying to get into my other questions. So we're going um, to still a little bit here on that part. But I'm thinking about what you said about the rigidity of calling something nonfiction or calling it a memoir. And I, I think every time, you know, I come to nonfiction, I still think, well, you know, in its own way, memory is also a kind of fiction. You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't ever remember something the same way it changes. That's why memory mm -hmm. can be great. And so it's really interesting to me to have this representation in your book. The other thing is your book is not formless, right? It's, it's, I think of it more as free, right? Because you have these different sections, these fragmented sections that dip into, and we're going to talk about it in a second, so let's not talk about it now, but like, you know, the quotes and the, and the, that kind of thing, but you also have like a lot of rhymes still in here. Like one of the ones that caught my eyes on page 145 and it's, I miss your hair ensnared between my fingers, the deep breath of your runner's lungs, the way you used to rub together your pointer and thumb. And so I think like for me, because I was coming to it with what you had already said, which is I'm not sure what this is, that like when I got to the places where I'm like, oh wait, oh wait, there's form here. Oh, there's rhyme here. Oh, there's beat mm -hmm. and rhythm here. So I was wondering, did you realize in those parts where the form becomes a little bit more form, did you realize you were doing this at the beginning of the project? Or was it like in revision, you realized it? And how did you write toward that intention once you figured out that was going on? Yeah, I think pretty early I was uncomfortable, like I said, with this idea that I was constructing an essay or like a piece of nonfiction. And so I think the musicality was very important to me from the beginning. It's something I'm invested in as a poet. Um, I love sonnets, which you wouldn't believe based on what I've done here, but I love a 14 line poem with a volta. And uh, I don't typically have a rhyme scheme in my sonnets, but I am really interested in sonics and musicality. And so I think for me very early on as a way of pushing back against any idea that this was like an essay of sorts, I really leaned into the sonic nature of the work. And even there's a point in the book um, where I say like, I'm uneasy about this rhyme. Like I'm uneasy when rhyme is easy because I'm worried that I'm falling into it as a way of like 
stepping away from and not looking at what I really need the book to look at in moments. And so I think that when I choose the rhyme, it is sometimes those moments that are a little bit more uncomfortable. Like that, that line you read is about longing in a way that it comes after a lot of sort of like the tension and the violence in the book. And so it's this idea of like, Ooh, I'm getting too close to the fact that these are complicated feelings. So maybe I'll just include a little bit more music here. But for me, I read a lot of the book aloud as I was writing it, thinking about how would I engage with this as, um, as a poet. And actually I almost rethought what I was gonna read today because I was like, oh, there's not as much music in this particular section. I love reading aloud and there being sort of that music and that force. So in a way, some of the form kind of helped put a barrier between you and the work that allowed you to actually finish the book. Yes. This is what it sounds like. Okay, <laughs> cool. So now I'm gonna circle back to what you were talking about, like in terms of, you know, the speaker and yourself as the author, right? Because I think especially with poetry, when any poet is writing, the speaker automatically is like, oh, that's, that's the person who's writing the poem, when that's not necessarily true in those cases either. Even if, like in the case with field study, the, the life experiences or you know whatever are similar to what the authors is. So I guess I'm wondering when, or how does it serve you to differentiate yourself between you, the person who experienced this thing, and the speaker who's exploring it on the page? Um, I mean, honestly, there's just like a level of protection. So not even just in like people engaging with the work and asking me questions. I surely had some early readers who were like, this fun fact, um, I did not know this about you. Could you tell me more? And giving myself the speakers like, no, actually, what's nope. in the book is in the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also like, I think it's a layer of protection in terms of those untruths that I'm talking about. Like I can tell a more complicated story. I can tell a story that has layers in it that aren't necessarily my own. And so it feels a little bit different from my first book where I actually put my name in as one of the speakers. And so it felt like people were like, oh, so this is you and I very much so in conversation about the book. I was like, it's a contemporary speaker who bears my name. And yes, again, I think the truest thing is probably that the speaker of mistress that's named Shayla is the same speaker in this book. Like that's probably the most true, but like, yeah, there, I mean, people who read this are like, oh my God, I remember this. Or like I mention other people in this book that I know and love. Like some of the people that are quoted are people who are like movie stars. <laughs> some people are black thinkers and scholars and some people are my family members and friends. Um, and then I even mentioned, like, I mentioned you in the book. You're not I'm here to say, as an aside, someone turns 28 in the book and it is me. Okay. Yes. So when you get to the, to the point where, um, where someone turns 28 in the book and I say Sandra Bland's eternal age, I'm talking about Don Teal. And for me, like, it would be foolish for me to pretend to people like, this is not you, Don Teal. It's not me. Like, I, I recognize that there is sort of that blurring. But I think for me, that's what I'm always really interested about in poetry, which is why I asked the question in the book, what is truth in poetry? What exists in the gaps? Like, I exist in the gaps, but I also don't exist in the gaps. I think it's very true to say both, like, I am this speaker and I'm absolutely not this speaker all at the same time. Yeah, especially if you take into account that even if it was you at some point in the past, you are no longer that person. We are no longer the people that we once were unless we're somehow holding on to some manifestation of that image or the, that way of thinking, right? We are always changing. We are always slightly different than who we were even just a moment ago. And this book is primarily about like 
pulls from experiences from childhood to to now and well not now but you know when I finished the book a, a year or so ago yeah. so I think that you know like you're saying like it's a lot of different versions of maybe parts of who I am slash was parts of who you were and parts of who was created to explore those those past iterations and future iterations right this book is also a book that is looking toward the future in, in certain ways um mm-hmm. even though yeah a lot of the concentration is on past and what had happened ghosts if, if, if that feels um accurate yeah. um i wanted to stay a little bit on the topic of anxiety because it gets mentioned again like i said so this is it feels like double speak because I'm like talking about you and the you that I know and the conversations that we have, but also the book also brings these types of conversations onto the page. And I wondered if you can elaborate on what exactly that anxiety is and what it's tethered to and how did that play in the writing of the book? So I guess the anxiety that you had in like, oh, I don't know if I actually want to um, know whatever I'm trying to know about myself and then, then put it into the public. And do you still feel that way now now that it's actually published? I think the biggest anxiety was that people were going to think I was super fucked up. Like, (laughs) just point blank. Like, just, like, you know, that I was and or am still a mess. And so I was just like, "Mm, this book feels very much, like, particularly the form, it feels very much so the way my brain operates, where I'm just sort of, like, pulling these random threads together. And, like, I told a friend a couple years ago that I almost always have a soundtrack playing in my head. Like there's a random song that's stuck in my head all the time. And so there's always like all of this chatter and noise and all of these different things coming in. And so I was one concerned that the form would be not digestible to other people. Um, and in that way, it would feel sort of like, oh, there's something wrong with the way my brain works almost. Like, so I think that was part of it. But another part of it was like, when I was trying to do that research about interracial desire, so little information that I could locate that I was like, so does no one talk about this? Because it just means that like, I'm a hot mess and like, no one really wants to talk about it because it's kind of a hot mess. And I was, um, I reached out to two people. They were doing a panel at the Baltimore book fair. Um, and they were talking about being mixed race children and like desire and all these other things. And I was like, so like, do you all have source material that you go to when there's two people that I know? And I was like, do you all have source material? when you like talk about interracial desire and one of them was Danielle Evans and she was like, mm, <laughs> and it was just this moment where I was like, man. So it felt like there was this dearth of conversation and I wondered if there was this dearth because what I was gonna unearth was the fact that I was really messed up and like the ways in which white supremacy basically had worked and wormed its way into me. And not to say all interracial relationships are steeped in, like are invested in you know, self-hatred, but I was worried about what I was going to uncover about myself, my past, my history. I went to a lot of white schools as a kid. And so I was just like, man, is, am I going to just realize through all of this that I'm, I've always been damaged and like, this is where it began. And I think there was a lot of fear in that. Um, and I think in writing the book, I really held it close to the chest and showed very few people because of that. Like I was terrified of what I was unearthing in myself um, and trying to better understand sort of and unpack some of these things that happened. And so I think, you know, the form was one sort of thing in terms of anxiety, like, I don't, I haven't seen a form like this, what the hell am I doing? And the other was like really deeply personal. Um, And I'm really grateful for the early readers that I did have, like you, who was like, oh no, like keep pushing into this. Um, And I was just, I was scared um, about how people were going to not only read the book, but think about me as a human being and the way that I operate in the world. And so, yeah. Yeah, and I I think about that, and I think that was one of the reasons why I had to call you and give you like the side eye over the phone is because I I think you were the first person 
are one of the first people that I felt like I was able to talk to about like me being like uncertain sometimes that I'm, I'm married to a white man. And so sometimes, you know, I'm like, is that because um, I'm still internally like white supremacist or like what, what's going on with that? You know, the love is real, but like, what about how are other people viewing that? I remember I told you about that time we went to all go see like Django Unchained and you know, there's the scene in the tree and I was sitting there crying afterwards. I was like, oh my God, I betrayed my race. Like this whole like thing. And I, and I felt weird saying it. And I felt, you know, it's something that you feel like you can't talk about. So I absolutely hundred percent am so grateful that you decided to write a book about it because I think there's still so many things that we've attached shame and guilt to that are completely normal human things and that we can't work through without looking at them. So it's nice sometimes to be forced to look at them if you're not inclined to do so on your own. And I know yeah. like writing this book was also you doing that. Um, yeah. no, I talk about Django though, I was like, oh no, I, this so like- <sighs> The tree, the tree, oh my God, messes me up every time. The dog- One of the yous in the book was like, I love that movie. And I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> I know, it's such a good movie though. It's so funny, but like also so sad. Um, okay. With you. Anyway, continue. Yeah. So I want to just remind everybody, if you have questions, we love questions. Please drop them down into the chat and we will get to them. Um, just wanted to let y'all know, because I know I have long questions and I feel like I'm not going to get through them. So now I got to cherry pick which ones I actually want to talk to you about. But this one, I 100% want to talk to you about, because one of my favorite things about this book is also one of the elements that I think makes it so unique which is, you know, this book is an intimate exploration of like black womanhood and desire and fear and, you know, the move to understand and accept the self essentially is how it came off to me, but it's also just drenched and like pop culture references. You know, yes, you have the quotes from, um, you know, black thinkers and, and creators, but you also have like iconic TV shows and movies in here. Most notably for me was Mad Men, you know, you know, I was going to say it, Mean Girls, Fight Club, and we're going to talk about scandals separately in a second. But um, I want to ask you, could you talk a little bit more about what drew you to that choice and how do these references both illuminate and shape your intentions for your work? Yeah, so I think when I started out, like I was saying, I was doing tons of sort of library research and it was really important and interesting for me to like bring in all of these black thinkers. I love Audre Lorde, she's peppered all over the book at, you know, um, Bell Hooks, Tressie McMillan Cottom, Ross Gay, Cheryl D. Hicks. But it felt untrue to the speaker and felt untrue to me for it just to be straight up academic. Like it felt as though it wasn't, that's not, that's a far more recent part of who I am. That's a facet of who you are, yeah. Yeah, it's just one part of who I am, but I'm also someone who loves music and someone who loves film and television. And so like it very quickly, because it started with scandal, it felt like, well, how am I gonna start with scandal? and then? you know, strip this book of any other sort of pop culture references. And I think it honestly, the moment where I decided pop culture has to be in here was absolutely when I realized that Disney's Pocahontas Just Around the Riverbend song was really a loose quote of Heraclitus, an ancient Greek philosopher. And I was like, my nerd is so alive. <laughs> and like, this is who I am, someone who loves the fact that ancient Greek philosophy shows up in a Disney movie that's really problematic, I understand. Um, and so that was the moment where I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll bring in Pocahontas and I have to bring in this Heraclitus quote. And oh my gosh, if I do the research about Pocahontas, it actually is tethered to something biblical. And I think for me, all of those threads, because she took on um, Rebecca as a biblical name um, when she moved to Europe. And so for me, it was like, oh, all of these things are connected. All of these are part of the project. All of these are part of like the speaker and the self that I'm creating. And so it just felt really natural, particularly in that moment where I was like, oh, 
I guess there's just going to be pop culture everywhere. And I was rewatching tons of Mad Men. I was like, Ooh, when I'm talking about, you know, cyclical things, I should talk about the fact that I've watched all of Mad Men a million times and won't watch a new show. <laughs> and so like, I was like, well, this is something that's part of the book. And so like, let me just put it in there. And then I was really happy with sort of the way the layering panned out because it meant that not only did I feel like there was something for the academic side of me and the like, the pop cultural side of me or like the human I am in the world, but it also just felt like a whole self. Um, we don't live in a silo. We are complicated and full in that way. And so I just wanted that to be present in the work as well. I loved it, especially, and I wish, I almost was like mad that you said it in the next line. Cause I was like, yes, I already knew that, but you know, we are a complex calculus for which the limit does not exist. I was like, mean girls, mean girls. I saw that in the theater and it was just like in my brain. So like, I get that the limit does not exist is not exclusively a mean girls reference. But, but I was like, if you're my age, you're probably gonna think it is. It is. So that's just the truth. So um yeah, I really loved it. And I felt like just all these different pieces, like you said, come together to make the whole and it, it comes to make a complete, a more complete picture. So before I start looking into the chat for questions, I want to ask you this, just because this is like one of my favorite things. Um, a, rep a repeating phrase in the book is, you know, when the field's a bed, when the field's a bar, et cetera, you know, it comes up a couple of times and they all go down these rabbit hole of exploration of how these spaces inform our relationships and our understanding of ourselves. But I was really interested in the one that you have on page 51, which is when the field was a field, where would I have been in it? And for me, and excuse me, I'm going to use the hard R here because that, that feels, um, you know, like close to the times, but it brought into my mind the dichotomy between the house nigger and the slave nigger, right? Like essentially colorism, which mm -hmm. is a subset of white supremacy. Um, and, you know, all of the hierarchies and privileges afforded to even the people that these systems are designed to oppress. So I wanted to know if that was your intention. And can you talk more about how that idea, this colorism, this lightness, this paper bag test shapes the book as well? Yeah, and that's absolutely what I meant, like, where would I have been in the field? And I think that colorism is so rooted in my understanding of, like, my growing up in a way that I didn't recognize until I was a full-blown adult. Like, I think about the section that I read earlier about, like, my grandmother and great-grandmother, like, it was something that, like, the teach she's too pretty to be in the kitchen had to do with light-skinnedness. Like, it wasn't just, like, physical attractiveness. And I felt like it was rooted in those things. And so yeah. for me, I just always like, it was something that I was aware of, but not really aware of until I was much older. Also primarily probably because I had tons of white friends growing up and didn't actually have a lot of black friends until I went to college. I was like, right. oh my gosh, I am bright. Um, and had friends who made a point of, and like family members made a point of how bright I was. And I was like, this seems like a thing. <laughs> and maybe I haven't processed this yet. So I think, you know, um, I, re I recall someone saying one time, I was like, well, we were talking about dating white men. And I was like, what, well, have you never dated a white guy? Like, and she was like, well, you've dated white men because, and I was like, huh? And I was like, 100% oh, right. true, 100 And we're talking about color. And I was like, oh, we're talking about pigmentation here. This is something that I have not grappled with. And it's something that I was like, I'm really interested in grappling with it in this project. Like if I were a darker skinned black woman, would this particular you have engaged with me in this way? And I think, Yes. I asked that question a lot because I recognized that he dated other um, Black women who were similarly hued. And okay. so I was like, oh, okay. These are things that I, I wanted, I thought was really important not to shy away from in the book. Yeah. Um, particularly because while I was writing it, I watched Dark Girls and Light Girls. And I was like, ooh, this Light Girls documentary is painful to me. And not painful because I felt really emotional, but I just felt like no one had really 
it was a documentary about, in my understanding, white girls being like, it's so hard being it's white. It's hard because I got picked on, which is, yes, okay, fine and true, ha you know, happens, but also like, think deeper than that, like, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. I'm also doing that work of examining all of the ways in which even in my own household, I was made to value my lightness. Yes. So, um, so yeah. like, you know, I wanted to not shy away from that conversation in the book because it made me so uncomfortable to watch white girls and be like, am I part of this problem? Because I don't want to be. And so I wanted to do that work. And so I think it's really important because it's not just racism and sexism that are sort of the main pillars in this book. It's also colorism. Colorism. And yeah. And I just, I feel like, you know, someone asked me when I was talking about the book very early on, they were like, what is colorism? I was like, and that's part of our problem. And that is the problem because it's still somehow not, I don't, it's colorism, but it's not even just like, it's just colorism in the black community. Any community where you are darker than white, there is colorism. There are people who are lighter, who are held up to a better standard. Oh, you're closer. So you have more privilege and you, you know what I mean? That's, that's how it works in every society that is, you know, brown on down. All right. Yeah. So like, that's, that's how it works. But, and I don't think I did it perfectly, but I think it was something I just absolutely did not want to shy away from in the book. I appreciated seeing it. I feel like I'm seeing it more in people's texts, but it absolutely was not the case, like even five years ago, even yeah. six, seven, you know, that kind of stuff. So I appreciated um, having seen it. I'm trying to decide if I have time to ask you one more question. I think so, because I think we could go to 710 if we needed to. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna ask you one more question and then I'm gonna go into the box because um, I really wanna, I'm, I'm excited for the trivia. But um, all right, so now we're gonna talk about, we're now gonna talk about Scandal, yeah. right? Which is, you know, obviously one of the centers of this book focused on the speaker's relationship with this white man and all of the complications and paradoxes that come with that. But I think especially this, this interracial relationship thing comes into play when you're dealing with black women dating white men. And it made me think of this, this time that, you know, I had this manager that came up to me. Again, I, I've been with my husband for quite some time. We weren't married yet, but he came up to me and was just like, what's it like being in an interracial relationship? And I looked at him, I was like, Eddie, your wife is Korean. You're in an interracial relationship. And he was like, that's that's not the same thing and so I was like you know he's like that's different and so my my question to you and you might not even have an answer for the first one was like what do you think it is about that mix white black where people often feel like that's the epitome of interracial relationship and then the second question is do you think there's a discrepancy between the way interrelate interracial relationships are depicted in art and media versus the way these relationships function in real life and are you making commentary about the those depictions in your work, those discrepancies? Tell me if I need to slow it down. I got you, I got you. So the answer to the first question is like, what is the friction about black-white relationships? My quick answer is gonna be slavery, <laughs> which is like, I read, what was it? Last summer, Margaret Wilkinson Sexton, I believe is her name. She wrote, oh my gosh, The Revisionist. I'm butchering probably. I think her name is Margaret um, Wilkinson Sexton. And she last summer had a had an essay written for the Paris. She wrote an essay for the Paris Review um, that was about uh, June of last year in the height of all of the violence. Um, waking up next to a white man, like she was married to a white man, and like what it is to wake up next to the oppressor. And like I think that's what it is. It's like yes, white supremacy exists in and not just black white relationships, but I think it's in this country that particular legacy that makes it so layered. Um, and in terms of like its depiction in media, I actually ended up not really talking about like responding to the depictions all that much in the book. I actually, there was a lot more in it. I had a 
real long um, section about Olivia and Jake in particular. Um, that's the relationship I was more interested in. In um, yes, Margaret Wilkinson Sexton. Thank you, Maria. Um, but like, I recognize that like the point wasn't actually the depictions. The point was like, what did it mean for me to see not just an interracial black white relationship, but a black woman and a white man's relationship and what that meant in terms of like Olivia Pope being this powerful woman brought to her knees metaphorically, potentially also literally in the show. No, no literally. And like literally crumbling in so many different scenarios because of these white men. And I'm like, the power politics here are wild. And like Fitz being an older president of the United States and her, like, it just, for me, I was more invested in like, okay, so why am I watching these particular things because I recognize at some point like I had been watching Archer for years and I was like oh, do I really like Archer or is it just Lana it's, and Archer's relationship because of the relationship yeah I was I often was like looking at like is this normal is this like okay am I weird and yeah like so, yeah and yeah. like I recognized there were lots of things that I was watching that had a black woman with a white man and I was like am I trying to suss out something for myself I don't do I even like these things that I'm watching and so I think I was trying to understand the depiction, like, was I actually watching these things and finally actually, like, these are the things that sparked me to be like, what's happening here in this particular relationship? Yeah. But yeah, I think I commented less on the depiction, but it was something I watched a lot of, uh, I took in a lot of media that presented um, interracial relationship with a black woman and a white man, because I was particularly interested in the ways in which those women were depicted. And it was by and large that it was invested in this strong black woman hood like all of these depictions of black women they were strong black women but these white men were the like their kryptonite and I just thought it was really interesting that it was like oh it's that the white like in all of these iterations it's that we will crumble for this white guy and I just thought that was really interesting and so like I think in working on field study I was like well seeing some of this in the project that I am the arc that I'm creating but what does it mean for that not to be the end of the loop like the end of scandal essentially we're led to believe that Fitz and Olivia probably end up together but I'm like what does it mean to get out of this loop to cannibalize this thing to process it to push past it and not just whiteness or a white man but like what does it mean to push back against what are these really problematic relationships and this idea that black women are really strong except for when it comes to a man and like create something new yeah I don't know if that actually answered your question. No, I did. It did. And I love you. And I'm so upset because I have so many other questions. Like the next couple of questions are hitting hard, but I want to make sure we get to the audience because the audience is here to also ask their questions. So let's, um, I think we should take audience questions now. And then if we have time, I'll ask you the other thing I want to ask you. And then we're going to play our game. Okay. Sounds good. Our bookstore beauty has come back to help us. So uh, Maria had a question, uh, Maria Isabel Alvarez. Uh, actually, she had a two-parter. So two-part question. Great girl too, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So uh, she wanted to know, uh, how did you decide on the quotes peppered throughout the book? And also what advice do you have for writers working on their first book? In terms of deciding the quotes, I primarily um, was just like reading things and taking tons and tons of notes. And so I had notes on my phone, I had notes in a journal. And it was really like, when do these, I'd be reading something and it would spark sort of a passage after it. So oftentimes what's happening is like, the quote came to me or I was reading it. And then I wrote the section that follows it after reading that quote. Sometimes I was reading things and was like, oh, it would go great here. Um, and things moved around a lot. Like I did not write this, you know, like the myth of Jack Kerouac where he wrote it all at once. Like all of this sort of moved uh, uh, many, many times. Actually one of my editors, Jennifer Baker, 
suggested moving like an entire section that was in the latter half of the book to the front. And so I think um, the quotes just were me being engaged with the world, um, you know, and me thinking about like some of the Mad Men quotes were things that just stuck in my mind. Like he only likes the beginnings of things. Always, always, always I stuck with me. That. No. And that. like, you know, some of them were quotes that have stayed with me for a while, but others were quotes that came to me over the course of writing this. Like I think about my family, like the family and friends that I have in the book. Uh, I think of Jameer Jackson Stroud, Era Jackson Sams, and Nayla Cummings like those were quotes that they said just randomly while I was writing the book. And I was like, so can I actually use this for um, for this book that I'm working on? And so I think like there was definitely like a patchwork of how I came to and use these quotes. And my suggestion for first book writers is just keep going. It is terrifying and it's hard. And there were many times I wanted to give up, particularly like even after the I signed the contract for the first book, I wanted to give up. And my father who is here, I cried one day and I was like, I think I'm gonna give up writing. And he told me, I do not say this lightly because I know this word is problematic and you don't love it, but like, I think you're actually being just a touch hysterical and I can't talk to you like this. Like, so he was like, you must calm yourself because I actually know that that's not true because I tell people all the time, uh, students who ask me like, should I go to an MFA? And I say, don't write unless you have to. It's really difficult and it takes grit and there's gonna be like, tons of rejection. But like, for those of us who have to, you know. And so, you know, don't lose faith because publications aren't happening. Don't lose faith because you're not getting certain awards. Keep pushing um, because it will happen. And when it does, like I started writing seriously in 2010 and my first book came out in 2018 and, or 2019 and my second book came out this year. And people are like, oh my gosh, you're so prolific. I'm like, no, I've been writing for a decade and I just have like a whole bunch of things stacked up because I've been working for a really long time. So just keep prolific, yeah, by the way. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. That's real. All right, all right. And then Laura uh, wants to say gracias to the two of you for being here. Uh, and she says, uh, Sheila, can you talk a little bit about your depictions of motherhood and childbearing in field study? I'm so glad that this question was asked because that was a question that I had, so yay. <laughs> you know, it's something that happened in Mistress, my first book, where I realized all of a sudden I had all of these, like I, my first book is about um, Sally Hemings, the enslaved woman who had at least six of Thomas Jefferson's children and a contemporary speaker. And I was thinking while I was working on that book project, I was trying to figure out like who was Sally Hemings in, in her world outside of what we understand her to be in history, which is the enslaved woman Jefferson slept with, raped. And so like all of a sudden I recognized a whole bunch of poems had to do with motherhood. And I was like, oh, she made the ultimate sacrifice for her children. She could have stayed in Paris and she decided to come back to have her children in the United States. And I was like, oh, she's a mother. And I think that's something that really stuck with me in that book project and something that really stuck with me here in, in field study. Like, what does it mean to mother? What does it mean to lose a child? What does it mean to not be able to bear children? What does it mean to choose to like want and desire a motherhood, but be afraid of it as well because of maybe other depictions of motherhood that we've seen or our own mothers. And so I think that I was really interested in sort of like teasing out, like how do we separate desires for motherhood with desires for a person. Um, and I think I was wrestling with some of that in the book, like, you know, what does it mean for the speaker to be the mother of a dead ova? Like, what does it mean for her to be mother to dead eggs and mother to tumors and not mothers, to, not a mother to children and for these other yous and these other lovers to be parents? Um, and what does it mean to decide for oneself outside of relationships? I know a lot of people who have been like, you know, I was in this relationship because I wanted to have children and I'm no longer sure I want to be with this person. And I think like, I think that for me and in this book project, I want the conversation about motherhood to exist outside 
of like gender norms and outside of relationships and all of those things. And I think that there's something really beautiful to the act of creation and the act of choosing to create, just like there's a beautifulness to the act to choose to love, which, you know, at the end of the book, I write like love takes courage and I no longer think myself brave, or maybe I'm the bravest I've ever been. Like, what does it mean to choose love and not settle for things that don't serve you? And what does it mean to choose to love yourself in really big, beautiful ways, which might mean being single, it might mean being with a person, but it means to like put you first and to put what you and your body want first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, we have time for one more question and then I'm gonna hand it back to Dantel. So uh, Joe has a, a question for Sheila. Uh, Sheila, he wants you to talk about what you're working on next, your next project, and maybe how it is or isn't growing out of or in conversation with field study. And Joe knows what next project I'm working on. <laughs> Prolific. <laughs> um, so I'm actually working on two next projects. One is an essay collection um, that I'm hoping to work on about sort of road trip travel and like ideas and understandings of home. So what does it mean to be a black person living in the United States and not feel like the United States is your homeland? Um, I only feel American when I go abroad and someone's like, are you an American? And I'm like, am I? I'm, I'm black. Uh, I'm a black American like I've always felt hyphenated in this way and so like what does it mean to not feel at home in one's home um, and so I'm working on that through a series of essays about travel abroad but also domestic road trip travel and I'm on leave starting June 30th for my university job and we'll be hitting the road to do some of that travel so that's the that's the big one and you probably can't see it because it's dark back there but I also realized that I have like a whole nother poetry collection sort of in the works um, that's about origins um, and also also apparently has a ton to do with babies because apparently I'm, well, not apparently, I know I'm obsessed with babies. So there's what that is. <laughs> Yay. All right, all right. Y'all have something else Yeah. Yes, okay. So now is the part, I have, there's so many questions. We're gonna have to have like a part two of this. I'm not gonna ask them now because I want to do this game. So this is the part, audience, please play along. Shayla, close the chat. If it's open, don't cheat. All right, so we're not doing that. So, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna play Who's That Group? So I'm gonna play like a tiny little clip of a song and Shayla has like just a few seconds to either say the name of the song or the group. Y'all can play in the chat if you know it. Um, some of them are gonna be real easy and iconic. It's all girl groups, so I'll give you that only hint. That's the only hint you get, all girl groups. But otherwise, I'm nervous. All right, so if you don't know it, say pass and I'll go, okay? okay? All right, let me make sure my shit's on. Oh, where are my girls at from the front of the back? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was a win, right? Oh, Destiny's Child. The college <laughs> jumping child. All right, okay, I'm starting easy on you, okay? Thank you, thank you. This is also 3LW. Oh, wait, wait. Did you say 3LW for that last one? No, I said Destiny's Child. Okay. 3LW, what's the song? Baby, I'm gonna do it right? Okay, I'll give you Close it. enough. I'll give you All right. I was like, I can get to the chorus, but I'm not gonna sing for you. Ice Girls. What's the song? Oh, you said song or... Um, you're also not playing choruses. I'm old. I don't uh, know. Say you'll be there. You got it. Thank All you. right. I said, hey boy, sitting in your tree, you know me always on 
Hold on. <laughs> Is it creep? No. Creep. Yeah. All right. You know it. Now you can't with these white girls. That's why I put them in there. <laughs> you know this song, though. I do know this song. Don't look at the screen. Maria's telling answers. Oh, nope, <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the, he loves me. I was like, if you hadn't told me not to look at the screen, right, I wouldn't have right. looked up. All right. All right. Last one. Puppy cat dog. Yay. I don't know if any of these songs. All right. Oh, God. All right. So that was just because, obviously, if you've read the book or you will read the book, there's a beautiful part in there where she said, I want to be a part of a girl group. And I was like, if you were a millennial, you wanted to be a girl group, probably. Probably you wanted to be so bad. And so um, this book brought me so much joy, brought me so much understanding about myself and new ways to look at myself in the world and, you know, my relationships with my family, with my husband, with my friends. And so I really appreciate you being here. And thank you all for the audience for being here. I have like 10 million more questions, but we'll just have to get on the phone about it. Yeah. Give it up for these two amazing writers and creators, please. Thank you everyone at City Lights and thank you so much Dantiel for your amazing questions, for being here, for being an early reader. Thank you to everyone at FSG who was a part of this and everyone who is here today to help me celebrate. It's been a really amazing journey and I'm grateful that all of you are here on this journey with me. So thanks so much. Please buy a book. You, yes. I mean, obviously you could buy Shayla's book. You could buy book. You could buy any book. Just buy a book from the bookstore so that we still have indies when we can go out into the world. But you can actually go visit. Um, City Lights right now, but like we want to have events in person one day eventually. So please support Indies. Please support Indies. And Dantel, I want to say gracias. You're the first person to ever bring a musical segment to City Lights uh, events. I think I this do is what a, I can. as well. Gracias so much, maestras, for the for the lessons and for the love and for the poetry and for the dialogue. Seriously. Thanks for uh, having us. Thank you. We've been uh, broadcasting live from the third floor of City Lights Books the office of our dear departed patriarch, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Gracias, mi gente, for tuning in. Much love. City Lights loves you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com slash events.